Explore the minds and marketing strategies behind today's winning brands and businesses. Tap into the power of the creator economy with Earned by Creator IQ. Here's Connor Begley. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Earned. Today, we have Steph Wizink, the Managing Director and Senior Research Analyst covering the retail and consumer products categories for Jefferies. Uh, thanks for joining the show. Thanks, Connor. It's great to see you. I know. So Steph and I have known each other for a long time. You've been doing this for 20 plus years, even though you still look like you're 27. I don't know how you do that one, but uh, <laughs> I'm excited. I'm so excited to have you on today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, I, uh, I don't have any good beauty tips. So unfortunately, you see what you get, I guess. Well, it's just that good Minnesota sunshine, right? That's what, uh, <laughs> lack of it, the lack of it, I think. <laughs> okay. Let's start. Cause I think a lot of people, you know, they're going to listen to this. Don't know what you do. Right. So maybe give a really quick kind of, or, you know, give 30 seconds to a minute. What is your job? What do you do as a profession? Yeah. So I'm going to first start with Jeffries. We're an investment bank, a global investment bank. And the simplest way to think about what we do is we connect capital to ideas. So we work with companies that need money and we have investors that have money. And our job is to broker those relationships. And we work on Wall Street. So every day we get to watch this crazy market dictate what the value of companies is, higher or lower. And um, the great joy I have is to be a consumer analyst. So I get to connect a bit of consumer psychology to decisions around company strategy, risks and opportunities, um, M&A in terms of buying and selling companies, buying and selling brands. Um, so it's really, it's a fun role. I get to, to do what I love, which is track consumer interests. And then I get to translate it into business strategy and opportunity and valuation. Awesome. Well, that's why I brought you on, right? Because right now markets are getting a little crazy, a little squirrely. So I, I was uh, I was compiling some numbers and they were even surprising to me, even though I knew they were bad. So Amazon in the last six months, Amazon down 39%, Nike 38%, negative 38, Macy's negative 46, Google negative 25, Facebook negative 43, Target negative 37, Lululemon negative 40%, Nordstrom negative 35, LVMH negative 28 Revolve negative 66, Stitch Fix negative 71. I think the direct consumer brands that have gone to market have really gotten hammered the worst. So, uh, so tell me, based on your understanding of kind of historical downturns, so if you were to look at 2000, 2008 were the last two really big ones, you know, are we in one, number one? Do you think we're in one right now? Is that happening? Um, if, so, if so, like how long do you think that will last and how do you see that impacting kind of the retail and consumer industries over that time? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it is staggering to see those numbers and realize that the public market has essentially said that Nike is worth 38% less. Those are big haircuts to valuation. So I think part of the reason that the cuts are so dramatic is that the market is starting to price in a recession. The, starting, the market is starting to see signs that the consumer is receding. I am not an economist. I am not gonna declare a recession. But when we look at behavioral change, we're seeing the consumers making some discriminate changes in how they're behaving that would suggest that they're a little bit less financially confident. 
about their ability to digest inflation. So whenever that happens in the public market, it's effectively a shock to the assumptions that we all have. All of the things we thought were true, we now have to go back and reconsider and rethink. And what investors tend to do is they tend to like to manage from risk up. So they go and say, what's the most risky, lowest level that I could think is even possible? And then work my way back up into what's reasonable. And right now we're in a period of everyone's trying to assess how bad and how long. And I think there was some concept of maybe how bad, but then most recently we got Amazon that reported their earnings, Walmart that reported, Target that reported, Kohl's. And it's been worse than anybody expected. So that's creating an incremental shock. The degree of pressure on these businesses and the comments that the companies are making about the pressure on the consumer are more exaggerated than what was expected. And how long it lasts is also coming into play. You know, short cycle recessions tend to last six to eight months. If you look at long cycle recessions, it can be two to three years. So right now we're in a phase of not knowing how long. And when that happens, everyone again goes to how, how much risk do I have exposed right now and how do I mitigate risk? And so there's just a, a very clear exit of capital from the markets. And that's what's creating these substantial compressions in stock performance. It's scary. It's scary every day to see the level of reaction um, and it's not any one thing that's creating the concern, but it's a mountain of things that are building up that are really challenging things we thought were certain that are becoming more uncertain. Yeah, I think one of the things that's been surprising to me as a relative outsider, right, because I'm not looking at it in the same way that you're looking at it on a day-to-day -day basis, is, you know, the sentiment I was seeing was that, you know, in a lot of ways, consumer demand is still there, right? Like for a lot of mm -hmm. things. And so, you know, there's high employment, high demand, right? But we're still seeing these shocks. Like it's, it, it's a little, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. How do you, how do you make sense of that? Yeah, and that's, it's a great observation, Connor, that the data points aren't consistently negative. Yep. So when you look at some economic measures, they would say, well, the consumer balance sheets are healthy. People have been saving over the last couple of years. The high-end consumer hasn't been spending on services and leisure and travel. And so there's a lot of pent-up demand for those kinds of things. And on the low end, we've never seen unemployment levels with this kind of wage rate advancement. And so the low end should feel extremely wealthy on a relative basis. And so they've got plenty of cash to spend. What in reality, though, is happening is that even on paper, when it looks like the consumer is healthier, the way the consumer shows up at retail is, is based on a feeling, how they feel. Do they feel more financially confident? And if the low-end consumer has wage growth in the double digits, but now inflation is in the double digits for them, they don't feel wealthier. And so mm -hmm. they make decisions based on feeling and the psychology of consumerism more so than the financial algorithm. And the same is happening at the top end even though the high-end consumer has ample capacity to spend, they're pivoting. They're moving from, from goods, very goods-heavy economy over the last couple of years, into services and leisure. And so there's some motion at the upper end. And regardless of how much you make, when it costs you 20 30% more to fill up your car with gas, you're just kind of irritated. So there's a little bit of a psychological bitterness at the mm -hmm, upper end. Mm -hmm. That also affects psychology. So... We don't disagree with the economists that on paper, 
the consumer should be fine. But what we see behaviorally is when the consumer shows up at retail, they don't feel fine. And that feeling is what's governing their actions right now. There are some other signals. Delinquency rates in the credit profiles are starting to rise up. We're starting to see some changes in consumers' perceptions about persistent inflation. So while it may feel like inflation has peaked, there's still more inflation to come. The Fed headlines in terms of how hot the economy is running and how they might have to cool it down. And I think there's a fear out there that if we do get into a true recession, that business investment and employment is going to start to unwind. And Mm -hmm. so then you're also going to have a secondary factor, which is that the employment market starts to destabilize. So all of these things are, are floating through consumer psychology. They're all floating through investor psychology. Investors just have a way every day to take action against that psychological uncertainty. They go to the market and they sell stocks. Where consumers, you can't go to the market and sell your food or sell your goods back. So you just buy less the next time you go. Yeah. And I think, you know, we talked about this in uh, Miami just last week. And one of the comments that stood out to me that you mentioned is like, fear is a weird thing, right? So you got a lot of people that are looking at their retirement funds and watching them drop and drop and drop and saying, hey, you know what? Even if I have to take a 20% haircut, at least I've got it. And like, I don't have to worry about it anymore. And I feel like that, um, it's obviously like a really big deal, right? It's a big part of it for sure. So I guess one, or sorry, go ahead. Sure. No, I was going to say you're onto something. I think the idea of fear is often paralyzing, but it's, it's certainly unnerving. And I think that's a little bit of what we're seeing. It's just an unnerved consumer not feeling entirely confident, at least not as confident as they were even just 90 days ago. And inflation's a big piece of that. I mean, when people are seeing the cost of food and fuel going up double digits, those are every week purchases. And so it's just a constant drumbeat, a reminder. And it's psychologically stoking that uncertainty. And so and we did a survey recently of consumers and having done surveys over 20 plus years, it's pretty rare to see a consumer base that you survey agree with something in such magnitude that we saw with respect to how much more inflation is likely to come. More mm-hmm. than 75% of consumers in our survey thought that there is still more inflation to come. Mm. And so magnitude of sensitivity around pricing to us, and that was regardless of income cohort, 100K plus all the way down to 45K household income, there was a belief that more inflation is still to come. So they're also making purchase decisions today, knowing that in the future, those products are going to cost more and being conscious of that. Yeah. I mean, I think there's kind of, there's some logic like in, if you think it, there is going to be inflation, there will be inflation, right? Because you say, hey, okay, well, I'm repricing this contract okay, now we're going to price it based on what we expect inflation to be, right? So before it would increase by 3% a year, now we're going to increase it by 7% a year, right? And so some of it just happens because it's happening, which is probably the worst part, right? So once it's kind of broken through and become like, oh, no, 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 this is just how it is, it actually becomes harder to bring it back, right? Um, so Very true. So talk to me a little bit about kind of, um, you know, how you've seen retail businesses respond in the past. And frankly, we just had a, you know, a bit of a crisis, right? During COVID, right? Possibly an even bigger crisis yeah. for the retail industry. 
Um, how have you seen them respond? So when everything, the markets get uh, you know, volatile, a little scary, like how do you see the leaders respond? And particularly when it comes to kind of sales and marketing spend as well, just because that's obviously our industry that we're in. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so I think the best way to think about this is to go chronologically back to pre-pandemic and just remind ourselves that we were in an economic expansion period. On the back of the global financial crisis, one of the strongest seven-year cycles of economic expansion globally, but certainly in the U.S. as well. And it was really an unprecedented time in terms of consumer access to information. Social media, influencers, content creation, storytelling, brands were connecting to their consumers in new ways. Many brands were actually taking out old distribution, inserting new distribution that was directly connected to the consumer, the rise of e-commerce for brands. It really was a very fertile time to build business. Yep. And then, of course, came into this huge shock. And the pandemic had really three important factors. The first is that it made everybody digitally fluent in a snap because you had to. There was no other way to process your daily activity, work, groceries, <laughs> yeah, children's events, school, unless you could figure out a way to get connected. So that was big change number one, is if you were a late adopter of technology, you ultimately became a quick adopter during that period. The second is that the domains of consumption shifted because people were concerned about going into stores. They didn't want to catch COVID. We didn't know anything about this virus. Remember, we were wiping down our groceries for the first few weeks, thinking that you could get COVID from your groceries. <laughs> So there was I remember putting bleach like on vegetables. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this crazy stuff. And toilet paper and paper towels and over-the-counter medicines, and it felt like we were going into what probably many people experience as kind of wartime. Yep. That you bunker, not just hunker, but bunker down. And so you have digitization matched with kind of this obsession of hoarding and controlling when things start feeling like they're out of control and the domains in which that was happening were shifting to online and st some stores were actually closed down completely. Yep. And then the third is that this was a, a true health crisis. So we started to see just very extreme differences between the idea of safety and vulnerability. And it created pretty extreme echo chambers and gaps in, con in consumer and the social psychology among wearing masks, were you a master or not a master? Were mm. you a believer in COVID or not a believer? The political establishment, the even religious establishment started getting engaged in this. So if we think about that time, there was a lot of change in how consumers behaved and thought, but then the social, overall social schema in which we underwrote for decades was starting to become challenged. So then take us into 2021, which was our big year of recovery, right? Vaccines. Yeah. As soon as those shots started going into those arms, those feet sort of walking right back into retail stores. So for the U.S. economy, the, the true enjoyment and entertainment of shopping came back into the picture. And that surprised everybody last year. Uh, and at the same time, some of the social categories started to come back, but not in full. We were still on this sliding scale, kind of back to normalcy. But... Biggest surprise of 2021, e-commerce slows, stores bounce back. And as we've come into this year, now we start to see some of the long duration effects of the crisis, supply chain issues, and the globalization effect 
right? The fact that we import so much from China and China's in lockdown and how the entire world economy functions. Then you add in the Ukrainian war and it adds some instability in our political climate, in our geopolitical climate, and then drives the spike in fuel, which again is an every week purchase for people. So when you're filling up two cars in those garages with gas, it's psychologically drum beating on the inflationary conditions. So even in just a short duration of time, we've gone from firing on all, all cylinders, great economic growth, people feeling very confident to shock what yep. felt like a recovery to realization that this is not over yet. Mm-hmm. And there are some real structural impacts. And I would just say from this week, again, because we're kind of real timing some of these data points, when you have Amazon and Walmart and Target, three of the biggest retailers in the U.S., all facing massive inventory overages at the same time, because they underwrote a consumer that no longer exists. That consumer was supposed to be spending like crazy and you know, building out their goods investment. And what has happened is a consumer has locked up. Yeah. And that's concerning. And when it all happens at once. And so definitely some things to navigate through that weren't on investor radars. And I don't think for a lot of companies are on their radars either. So we're, we're in recalibration right now. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that could be affecting consumer behavior as well, like I thought a lot about this, was if you were to look at kind of the proliferation of consumer investing, right, through apps like Robinhood and otherwise, as well as the proliferation of basically speculation, right, people gambling on cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. that have taken a huge hit like, I remember you just see it, right? Like I would have friends that would come to me and be like, Hey, you know about business. Tell me about cryptocurrency. I'm like, don't invest in it. You don't understand it. Like it's very speculative, <laughs> like don't do it. But I know they all did, even though I told them not to. Right. And yes, yeah, some of them made money, but on average over the last, particularly the last year or so, um, they've not, right. They got hit really, really hard mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways. And so, you know, I would have to imagine that, and then again, so you have consumers putting money into cryptocurrencies that have gone down dramatically, and then all of these consumers putting money into the markets, um, which was probably not disposable income into, mm-hmm. you know, these highly risky assets, right, that have now tanked in the last six months. And so that makes another reminder of like, ooh, I got I to gotta tighten up a little bit. Like, yeah, I've got some cash, but not as much as I, I used to or I thought I would have. So... Something else that's happened. I mean, well, let, I want to ask you a question. Like, how how do you think that has affected the market? What have you seen when it comes to this kind of shift in consumers investing both in cryptocurrencies as well as you know in the markets through apps like Robinhood and other other mobile applications? Yeah, I think you're onto something really interesting, Connor. Just from a as a as a student of of consumerism, you know, the observations yeah. and the indicators. What's been really ironic over the course of the last few years is that the markets have become incredibly accessible to the average consumer. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Robinhood, there have been platforms that have launched, meme stocks have arisen because of this. I mean, the rocket emoji is like a power statement now, right? In social media. <laughs> so there are, it's just, it, historically Wall Street was somewhat guarded by the institutions. The institutional players controlled the markets and the capital and the flow of money. And now you have a bit of a David and Goliath, right? You have an inexperienced, gamification-seeking, 
consumer who's playing the markets against the big institutions. Mm-hmm. And that's happening both in the crypto landscape, but it's also happening in the everyday stock market landscape. But I also think you have other examples of this. StockX. I mean, people are buying and selling sneakers. So yep, yep. the idea of the, the concept of a market, we all want to believe in the altruistic value of the market, right? And the seamlessness and the transparency. And But the reality is these markets are very technical. And so I do think it's factoring into the notion that it's not a video game. Yep. There's real capital at stake. And so the idea of when you put in capital into the market, you're not going to get a little reward at the end you know, when it works, but you're, you're also not going to get anything at the end if it goes away. And so mm-hmm. there's this element of you're playing a different game and that game is incredibly serious. And yeah, I think you're onto something in terms of the accessibility of the markets has changed the dynamic of the market, but it's also changed, I think, the way the market affects consumer thinking yeah. as well. Like, you know, the number of people Googling the S&P 500 or Googling, you know, Amazon stock price is probably grown by an order of magnitude in the last five years, 10 years, right? Like just on a percentage well, basis. I mean, your, your stock tracker is essentially OEM on your cell phone now. So when you yep. buy your new iPhone 13, it's an app that's already there. So it's made very easy to track stocks, whether those are stocks you're invested in or stocks you're just curious about. And you just listed off a list of, you know, seven, eight companies that most consumers can identify by name. When you say Amazon to most consumers, they know what you're talking about. And Disney, Nike, Adidas, Macy's, these are places people and brands that people shop. So familiarity for sure. Well, and people like to buy the stocks of things that they're familiar with, right? Like, oh, I love Nike. It can't go down, right? And they're like, oh, shit, Nike's down 40%, right? Like, which literally <laughs> is like Nike getting cut almost in half. Like, oh, it's worth half as much today as it was six months ago. Like, what? Like, that's not real. Yeah. Like, it's not actually real. Like, there's no way it's worth half as much. Maybe it was worth 20% too much before and 20%, you know, too little now. But, okay, so let's talk. Yeah. Okay, so enough with the doom and gloom. Market screwed. We know that. Figure, let that kind of figure itself out. I want to talk about kind of a longer time horizon. So obviously part of the reason that we started working together early on was, you know, you started to see like, oh, hey, you know, the social media thing, like some of these brands are really winning using it in like a meaningful way and particularly influencers within that landscape. So talk to me a little bit about that evolution. Like how have you seen from, you know, call it 10 years ago when social media was really just getting started to today, the role that social media has played for these larger organizations, how that shifted. And then also, you know, if you've seen particular companies do it really well, like who are some of those companies that you've, you've noticed? Yeah. So the, the proliferation of social media to me has been one of the phenomenons that I think I'm going to be thinking about over my lifetime, because it provides not only an avenue for connectivity and community building, but it also can create some really unfortunate circumstances mm. in these environments. So I think, you know, taking the good, uh, the, the role of the influencer, the role of the, the brand voice, the storyteller, I don't think has ever been more prolific. And I do think consumers are, are telling us that they trust influencers in some cases more than they trust their own friends. So that's pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, I think with more disclosure and transparency around ads, 
um, you're starting to see some shifting in that. And um, I think new platforms are also rising up. You know, what we hear a lot about things like TikTok is that it is as pure and authentic as it can be uh, in social media versus some of the other platforms might be a little bit more ad heavy. So the, the consumer is starting to figure out, you know, what platforms to use for what. And it's almost like a portfolio of platforms now yep. in social media. I think brands approach it very similarly. Um, one thing I will say, though, is that when we go back and look at the evolution of how brands invest behind these platforms, there was a lot of investment behind visualization. So how do you tell something about your brand in an image, which was kind of the, the baseline for Instagram? And then how do you start converting that into stories and video? How do you leverage YouTube for education and brand establishment? Um, so there's... It's, interesting just to see again how different platform features are being used in different ways and I do think maybe over the course of the next few years you're going to see the best features from all the platforms are going to start to become the common features across all the platforms because every platform is chasing each other now mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and YouTube just launched the equivalence of stories as well so <laughs> yep. if you think there's homogenization of platform features and maybe that means there's going to be either consolidation or some of those platforms just don't make it long term. Um, but that's interesting to see that we've gone from very disparate portfolio platform strategy to kind of homogenization of the basic key features based on whatever is working best on each platform. Um, the other thing, though, I think that's changing a bit more, too, is as we kind of roll into the next generation, social media is very Web 2.0 and we start thinking about Web 3 we start really thinking about the, the role of the creator. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually really by Web3. I think it's super interesting to think that brands could partner with their fans to create yep. content about the brand. And those fans can actually be rewarded for it. Yep. That's unique. So outside of just becoming an influencer and hashtagging, you know, ad or spawn, there actually can be a way to, through technology, to connect that ledger between action affiliate brand and creator. Yeah. I mean, it's like, why do people buy stock certificates for the Green Bay Packers, right? It's not because right. they get any ownership out of it, right? It just like feels like you're a part of it. Um, so let's talk a little bit about kind of sectors, right? So obviously we have our own beliefs in terms of particular sectors where we've seen social media have a bigger impact than others. You know, you've got a little bit of a broader view across industries, although you did really focus on beauty for a while. Um, where have you mm -hmm. seen social media and influencers have a bigger impact? And where are industries are like, actually, it's just not, you would think it would be here, but it's not here, or it's just not really here at all. Do you see that across different verticals or sectors um, in terms of impact? Yeah, I. this is one of those things that's been a peculiar I think eye-opening experience. I would have expected social media to be dominant across almost every industry, but we are starting to see certain industries that rise up, certainly passion industries, aspirational industries, and also those that tend to have more demonstrable product categories. So where mm -hmm. demonstration and education are really important to the purchase journey, those categories tend to leverage social media uniquely well. Categories that are more utilitarian, not quite as much. Although I will give credit to some brands that have been able to kind of create virality, but they tend to use humor, memes, they tend to kind of play up off of what else is working versus creating a new pathway to the consumer. We may not 
necessarily love to watch story-based content around brands that are more utilitarian, but I do think there's, there are ways that they're finding kitschiness and novelty in, in using social. Um, I think the other thing too is you, in order to activate social, you need to have a place where people can go. They need to be able to click through to something. So mm. I think that's also another story more is many of the major retailers have now launched these ad platforms. And it's mm. because many small brands, libertarian brands don't have a, an e-commerce activation site. And so you're going to be buying and clicking through to the retailer who's then going to deliver the goods. And I think this is going to be a really interesting. Ulta has an ad platform now. They call it Ulta Media or Ulta Beauty Media, um, UV Media. Macy's has one. Walmart has one. Target has one. Kroger has one. So if you're a retailer, a modern retailer now, you're going to be in the ad business, which is a whole new pathway to connect digital and physical activation. It's so funny because like, I mean, it stares you right in the face, right? Amazon's advertising revenue has gone through the roof, right? But, uh, and so of course you're sitting there as Walmart going, wait, why aren't we doing this, right? We, we're, we're not quite Amazon in terms of search volume, but we're close, you know? Um, fascinating, I hadn't really thought about that. Okay, all right, let's do one kind of, I don't know if this is fun, but it's gonna be one fun end of show question, quote unquote. So, um, so for those, uh, those meme stalkers out there in the, uh, the, everybody with a Robinhood account. So what would, if you had to pick three retail stocks that you like over the next, call it year, what is it? So let's assume that we are not going into a recession. Well, I mean, you can pick things uh, that go down by 20% instead of 80%, right? So you can, <laughs> doesn't mean they're gonna go up. <laughs> they can just go down right. less than everything else. So I think what's really interesting is if you're gonna be risk averse, you're yep. gonna, not, you wanna, companies that tend to perform extremely well when the consumer is under pressure. So those are going to be your companies like Walmart. They tend yeah. to be big winners in periods of economic compression. If you're a little bit more opportunistic, you're going to look at those stocks that have been beaten down for maybe not such a great reason. Target is one I'm curious about. I'm not entirely convinced just yet, but Target has unbelievable consumer trust. And there's something about that to me that tells me, number one, they're a survivor. Number two, they're probably a long-term thriver. But number three, the question is, what do they do with that trust? Yep. Do they just sell you more dice or do they do something more with it? I am curious about where they head next. And you mentioned Amazon. Amazon doesn't make a lot of money from its retail business. It makes a lot of money from all of its other stuff. And so I think the future of retail, ironically, is just as much other stuff as it is commerce. Yep. So I would put Walmart and Target in that bucket. Uh, and I'm, I'm one that's not ready to completely yet write off the department store channel. I might be dead wrong, but <laughs> there's something still in those environments that a certain cohort of consumers still seek single destination shopping. I think where the department stores have gone wrong is they've lost their way in terms of curation. They mm. got too Amazon glorified to try to be everything to everybody instead of knowing what their position is sticking with their permit position and knowing also what their consumer permission is. So a little bit of cleanup in the department store landscape, probably not a bad thing. We've seen that happen. I think those that are left Nordstrom, Macy's. <laughs> I'm not a Macy's believer. <laughs> that to me feels like a little bit of a long ball toss. Um, so I would probably put, yeah, target Walmart, put those in the, the fighters and, 
if you're looking for you know big recovery opportunity off of discretion discretionary spending the department stores would be the place to put capital there you go well, Steph, I really appreciate you taking out the time today, especially on such short notice. I know I learned a lot today. I'm sure the people that listen in will uh, learn a lot as well. And uh, yeah, thanks again. You bet. Thanks, Connor. Take care. All right. Bye, Steph. Be a friend, tell a friend, and subscribe. Earned by Creator IQ. Creator IQ is your all-in-one solution to grow, manage, scale, and measure your influencer marketing program. Ready to unlock the power of the creator economy? Get started with a demo today at creatoriq.com.